Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello and welcome to Off The Beaten Track Podcast with me, Stu Whiffin. I hope you're all good. Nice. Pleased to hear that. Pleased to hear that. Today's guest. This was um, quite a big deal. Uh, very much a massive deal for me. Uh, this guest's music soundtracked my life from school to present. Um, that band is Madness. And my guest is Mark Bedders Bedford. Um, Bedders was a absolute gent. He came to the Hoxton Square Barn Kitchen to meet me. And we discussed the songs that have soundtracked his life. And we discuss his time up until, well, his, his whole career in Madness, which, which hasn't stopped. It's ongoing. And we talk about when Madness took hiatuses and the work that he's done, um, playing bass for Voice of the B.I. of Butterfield 8, playing bass for Morrissey. Um, just some really interesting journeys that, that, that Mark's gone on along the way. And... He chose some fantastic music, and it was an absolutely fantastic chat. Um, I held it together and didn't become too much of a fanboy, I hope. I hope it comes across that way. Um, so, yeah, please enjoy it. Um, before we do get on to it, just a big shout-out to um, the Distraction Pieces Network. Um, thanks to 76, the producer. Thanks to my name is Adam Brad Acton for any artwork and video content. And thanks to you lot for listening and supporting. If you like this and you like hearing me chatting to musicians about the music that soundtracked their career, have a look in the back catalogue because it's kind of what this podcast is about. We talk to creative people about music and their journeys and the, the songs that have soundtracked them journeys. Um, if you can subscribe, that's the best thing you can do. And then that way these podcasts just pop up on your, your listening device. I have a Patreon account. If you go over to there... That's www.patreon.com forward slash off the beaten track. If you go and have a look at that, then there's a weekly radio show I put out on there. So you can listen to guests and myself talking about music and you can hear all the tracks as well. Um, but that's enough waffle. Um, anything you need to know about off the beaten track is on www.offthebeatentrackpodcast.com. That's got links to everything, everywhere you can hear everything we're doing, merchandise, live shows, everything. I'm done, I think. Let's get on with it. Please enjoy Off The Beat and Track Podcast episode with Madness's very own Mark Bedders Bedfield. Enjoy. Before we get on with the podcast, I've got an announcement. Save Our Souls Clothing www.sosclothing.co.uk Why am I telling you this? Because they're our official sponsor. Yeah, that's right. Go and check them out because their clothing is off the scale. You're going to love it. So they've decided they want to be our sponsor, which is amazing. And what I have to do is I have to tell you about why they're amazing. So here's a little bit of blurb. So they've only been going a year. And they're based in Southend-on-Sea, just up the road from me. They put the company together based on a, a love of tattoos and alternative music. And they've worked with some of the greatest artists around the world to produce these items of clothing that are as unique as you lot. All of the designs are printed using biodegradable, sustainable and water-based inks. And in addition to that, they only print on garments made by members of Fairwear Foundation. I mean, come on, great clothing 
and a conscience. Since going live in April last year, they've seen their audience grow massively and are now selling orders all across the world. And they were recognised by Cosmopolitan magazine as one of the best sustainable clothing brands alongside names such as Stella McCartney. I mean, that's quite a first year, right? So, go and check them out because they've put a lot of love into supporting this podcast and I couldn't be happier. What else they've done is they've given you 15% off. So if you head over to www.sosclothing.co.uk, do a bit of shopping, see what you like, throw it in the basket, and then on the way out, put in the discount code BEAT15. B-E-A-T-1-5. And that'll save you 15% off. Amazing, right? www.sosclothing.co.uk Official sponsors of Off The Beat & Track Podcast. Let's get back to that podcast. It's Off The Beat & Track Podcast on the Distraction Pieces Network. With me, Stu Whiffin. Right, we're recording. We are at the Hoxton Square Bar and Kitchen. So a big thank you to those for letting me record the podcast here today. And today I'm joined by um, someone whose music has soundtracked pretty much everything from school to now, really. So it's, um, it's a real joy to be able to introduce Mark Bedders Bedford. How you doing? I'm all right. Ash, what do you want to be called? Uh, Bedders or Mark, anything will do, yeah? really. Yes, I've been called a lot worse, I must admit. So. <laughs> How you doing? I'm very good, yeah. yeah. Very good, good, good. good. Um, I hit you up on Twitter and you was gracious enough to get back. Mm. And, uh, and we've, we've spoke briefly before, we've just pressed record, and you said that um, the kind of concept of making lists about music and stuff like that appeals. Yeah, it really does. Um, it's If you ask a musician, though, to compile a list of music it's a a joy but it's also really really hard because I think as we'll talk about that yeah. it's there's a lot of hand-wringing goes on and yeah. you've got like maybe two or three tracks for that that you'll pick for you know for any one position in a list and then it just goes on and the hand-wringing gets worse and then it becomes really really kind of painful but yeah. um yeah, I think I've managed to do it and managed to pick a few songs for you. So. Good. I'm, I'm, I'm glad it, yeah. was, it, it, it was hard work. That's, that's yes. kind of what I want. I want people <laughs> to kind of um, rinse their minds and, and, and come out with... Um, yeah, I mean, don't get me wrong. We can, we can have some honourable mentions as well okay. for ones that didn't quite right, make that's the good. grade. That'll, that'll, that'll get me off the hook a little bit, yeah. If it was eating you up, mate. Um, <laughs> but as, I always start this with the same question, which is your first track. is the song with the greatest intro. Yes, well, I've, again, narrowing this down, I've chosen Bob and, Bob and Earl and Harlem Shuffle mm-hmm. because, to me, I mean, it literally starts with a fanfare. Yeah. And it's just so intriguing. It's like, well, what's going to happen next? And yeah. luckily, it's a brilliant tune that comes after it. Um, it. It's a really confident start to a record. It just says, sort of, ba-ba, here yeah. we are, you know. Um, I mean, there are, there are lots of others. I mean, I was going to pick East of the River Nile, which is an Augustus Pablo reggae tune which is a fan, sort of quite a mysterious intro um that was another one uh and it, that's just that leads you into a nice slow kind of reggae groove after yeah. it but it but the atmosphere it sets is absolutely fantastic but the the harlem shuffle one i don't think it can be beat i mean there are there are more moody ones maybe i was thinking i've heard it through the grapevine the way that sort of sneaks yeah. in and everything and from that era even um Dancing in the Street is a yeah. fantastic intro with that brass and a massive snare drum. Um, but Bob and Earl as well, I think it's, I mean, just for some of the listeners that aren't familiar yeah. with who uh, the Harlem Shuffle by Bob and Earl, it's also the beginning of Jump Around by House of Pain. I think maybe a lot of people uh, might know it as that, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, was, was famously sampled and used there. It's, I think it's like, it, it, it's a game of two hours because that instant stab at the beginning is such a kind of urgent call of arms and then it just drops yes. into that groove and it goes is, a bit cooler yeah, yeah exactly but it really grabs your attention whoever came up with it was a genius because yeah. it was just immediately if you put it on a jukebox or you put it on yeah you play it really loud you just think god what's this yeah yeah all right well regarding intros um hmm. whether it be i mean we'll obviously talk about madness in the in the duration sure. of this, this this podcast amongst the other things that you've done 
when you write, um, not just in manuscript, but in, in whatever mm. format you're working in, um, is intro a big consideration? Yes, I mean, yeah, it is, obviously, because you're just trying to catch people's attention straight away. And, I mean, these days I think it's even more important because people flip around so much these days, you know, whether it be YouTube or Spotify or something, they'll just push a button, they'll hear the first 10, 15 seconds or something and might, might then just flick away and go somewhere else if they don't quite like what they hear. How I mean, do you, How do you feel about that? Because, obviously, it's a, it's a very different way that people digest music now to yeah, what absolutely. they did when, when, when you know madness first mm. started and yeah. stuff like that like how do you find that that kind of concept that people just generally buy into a single and not an album as a body of work and, and i think you've got to ride with the times and i think that's the way it is now and i think um i've got i've got no problem with it i think i I'm, i mean but what i always believe is if the song is good it will always kind of sort of break through in the end yeah. you know and i think in madness we always try and feel if we can make a good record or make a good song then it will eventually find people and you know they'll actually think it is quite good mm. you know um yeah i i think it yeah it has changed a hell of a lot particularly the way you sequence a record now you know the way you where you put tracks one after the other in the old days obviously with vinyl and having two sides mm -hmm. you'd always there'd be a bit of a formula you'd maybe try and start a record with maybe your single and end the first side with something quite dramatic. And then you might take it down on the second side slightly to start and then build to a big climax at the end of the second side. So there was a bit of a way of doing it. But now, if you say do 10 tracks for an album, you're can't, yeah, you're, you, those rules have sort of gone out the window now. So the, the, the last Madness album or, or mm. the one before that, yeah. how did you approach the sort of track listing of that compared to the, the early albums, was uh, it? We literally saying that the rules have gone out the window they have really and we actually decided with the last album to pretty much put out everything that we recorded yeah. for that for that album i think it turned out to be about 14 tracks in the end in the old days you'd have to limit your time a bit because you can only fit about i think it's 20 minutes aside yeah. on a 12 inch record yeah so you'd have to worry about the time a bit but now there's no worry over time at all. So we decided that we, w we wasn't going to worry about that, that we would actually just put down, you know, all the tracks that we'd recorded for that album, just put them out. And what about, like, back then compared to now? Mm. I mean, I, I've not bought a, a single... Right. As, ...for as long as I can remember now. But obviously when you would be writing back then and probably throughout the 90s when you was releasing singles, you'd have to be writing B-sides as well. And when yeah. the CD format come out, maybe two tracks for you know to go on there. Mm, yeah. And is that a thing of the past now? I, I don't know. Yes, it is, because you don't... Yeah, you don't... You don't class anything as a B-side anymore. Yeah. Um, because there's not really a B-side. There's not really B-sides anymore, yeah. you know. that You just... You either... What, what, I mean, I think how the music industry has got around this is by releasing a lot of stuff as extra tracks, sure. as they call them, or you know kind of alternative versions or which i'm not i'm not a big fan of because i always believe that you, if you didn't make the album then i don't there's a reason for there's that. a reason for it yeah um um yeah in the old days we had a lot of fun making b-sides because yeah. we were let off the leash a little bit we always felt that we'd done the hard work with the a-side yeah. but with the b-side it gave us a bit of a chance to experiment and uh, have a bit of fun and try some different ideas which we did we used to go into the studio on our own and just mess around basically and produce sort of stuff yeah that was really enjoyable well before we get on to track two i think it's important to just say just how incredible a lot of madness intros are mm. i mean let's not overlook one step beyond us <laughs> Yes, yeah, yeah. What an amazing intro. Yeah, sure. You know, that's a call of arms, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, yeah, that's grabbing so. their attention. Yeah. And, and surely when you're playing on stage and them first, that first bar drops mm. and the crowd reacts, mm. that's obviously testament to the fact that them songs, the intros are so instantaneous and, and recognisable. Yeah, and when you, when, you, when you talk about it in that way, yes, you know, I mean, One Step Beyond does have a really good intro. Yeah. Um, which... Um, takes its takes take, i mean it the intro really comes from yeah from sort of like toasting yeah and 
I don't know if rap was too... When, when it was made, there wasn't that much what you'd call rap around no. or anything. But it comes from the Jamaican idea, yeah, yeah, of sort of toasting and actually almost bigging yourself up, you know, yeah. And, yeah. and actually kind of becoming an intro to the sort of, yeah, to what's coming next. But, yeah, no, it's a good, it's a great start. I mean, thinking about it, as you were talking, it's... Um, there's not that much difference these days with intros, actually, because I think maybe just the medium's a bit different. We were making intros so that when you heard it on the radio for the first time, it might become intriguing. Yeah. You know, the luxury of the radio is that um, that people couldn't turn it off. You know, yeah. it was actually there. So, uh, yeah, I think, yeah, I think, I think, yeah, you're right. I think the, the importance of intros is, I mean, there is an importance to intros, yeah. And a lot of people used to sometimes start with a chorus yeah. as an intro just to kind of wet people's kind of yeah. a, imagination a little bit. But. Okay. Um, track two, Mark, is the first song that you remember hearing that had an emotional impact on you. Yeah, this is, and I've gone right back to when I was really, really small, actually, and, it, and the track is um, Telstar. Mm. Um, incredible that, record. It is an incredible, technologically an incredible record for when it was made, and obviously I think people have heard of Joe Meek maybe mm-hmm. now because there's been films made That's about right. him and books about him. And bizarrely, Joe Meek, actually I lived in Holloway and that's where I'm from oh really so yeah I don't I don't know if if because uh, my grandparents bought that record uh and that's where I heard it as a really tiny kid and I have memories of it and playing it quite and getting them to playing it quite a lot because I had a big radio you know a radiogram and um which was with a fantastic sort of sound so yeah they used to play it a lot and as a as a small kid I love that record I mean, they, had, they also had sort of a lot of Beatles records as well, which everyone did at the time, because yeah. they were the Beatles, you know. Um, so I suppose a close second would be um, Can't Buy Me Love yeah. by the Beatles. Again, as a small kid, I remember that. So I, I generally ask guests, was their music on at home growing up and stuff like yeah. that? Have, yeah, have, yeah. You, have you got siblings? No, I haven't. Oh, no. oh right, because generally a lot of people have that, that older brother or the sister brother thing, record yeah. collection. I think that kicked in for me when I was at school. I yeah. think, but no, my my grandparents, yeah, and my mum and dad sort of weren't big big buyers of records, but mm. bought you know bought quite bought a few things and it, things like the Beatles, funny enough, because I think because everyone was probably buying Beatles records at yeah. that point, you know. When when you was first sort of listening to, to, to songs like that, and mm. and, 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 and Telstar's a, a, a a bizarre record as well. It's, it's yeah. very strange sounding yes, and, yeah. and, and sonically it sounds very otherworldly, doesn't it? It does, yes. And when, when I asked, like, the first record that had an emotional impact on you, how did that emotionally, uh, you know, did it, was it fascination? Was it joy? Was it... I think it was fascination um, that, that just the sound of it, because as you say, the sound is quite incredible, really, how they made that in 1961 or something, I yeah. think. Um, yeah, I think the fascination, and I think that again, the test of a good record. I just wanted to play it again and again, you know, as a kid, and hear it again and again. Yeah. Um, and so, when you was doing that, which, which I presume at this point you, you hadn't started playing bass, or no, no, no. I was really. This is when I was really, really young. Mm. I mean, I'd, I'd say four, five, six, something yeah. like that, years old. You know, so that was the first record I can ever remember hearing and really sort of being out, yeah, really liking. Yeah, but I mean, we were, you know, you. I listened to the radio a lot as a kid as well, and there was Junior Choice. I don't know if anyone remembers Junior Choice. There was this thing on Saturday and Sunday morning on the radio where they played kids. They played tunes for, for kids, and I used to listen to that. When you say that, what, what do you mean by tunes for kids? Like, well, there was things like the, La- you know, like the Laughing Policeman. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, yeah. Uh, you know, like Right Said Fred and uh, Sparky's Magic Piano, I yeah. remember. And uh, they... they and My Brother by Terry Scott, I think. So there were some comedy records as yeah. well that they play, played. But there's, if you listen to, if you dig out Sparky's Magic Piano, it's not a huge leap between that and, and Telstar, in a way, because they're, they're messing around with the technology they had at the time. Mm. Sparky's, funny one, it probably doesn't, and a lot of people probably don't know it, is Sparky's Magic Piano is about a piano that can talk, basically. So the nearest thing it sounds like, the modern equivalent, is a vocoder. Yeah. Um, so the piano speaks, and it's yeah, and again, it just caught me as a, caught my attention as a kid, you know. Okay, um, so how old was you when you did start playing, um, and why did you decide to pick? Did you learn guitar first and then? Go no, to bass? I, I played the bass, and I played the bass for 
for to be a bass player uh, with a friend of mine who was a guitarist. So I started playing when I was 13. Um, he was having, a friend of mine was having guitar lessons, had his own guitar, and said, I want to form a band. Can you play the bass? And so that was, that was my job, you know, play the bass. So that's how I got into it. Okay. Was you encouraged at home to, to, to sort of be creative and, and do stuff like yeah, that? Yeah, 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 very much so. And I think I was very lucky that, um, like a lot of kids uh, with musical instruments, my grandparents bought my first bass for me. So, you know... Um, that was kind of, yeah, that was encouragement. Oh, fantastic. Okay, well, we're going to move it forward to school now. Mm. And, and for track three, mm. the song that reminds you of your time at school. It's a Neil Young song. Um, it's called Tell Me Why, and it's from the album After the Gold Rush. And it's, it, that, I play that album, you know, constantly still. I love that album. It's an album that probably has a lot of meaning, like, you know, like records have kind of meaning to you. It reminds me of being at school. It reminds me of a lot of my friends from school. That's a strange record to remind someone of school, I think. I like, think it was just there at the time. Yeah. You know, it's one of those records. I mean, everyone was also listening to, like, Dark Side of the Moon. Yeah, yeah. And uh, trying to think of another one, like, maybe, like, Moondance by Van Morrison or Astral Weeks or something like yeah. that. This was pre, pre-punk, and we yeah. can probably go on to talk about what happened when punk emerged because everyone kind of changed their sort of feeling and what they were listening to completely but that record reminds me of my teens quite a lot Uh, and I I, I love it as a record it's a fantastic album Um, so I I guess uh, uh, I mean did you you enjoy school I should ask that yeah I did I did I met a lot of really interesting people at school Um, I went to William Ellis school in Highgate Road, which was very near, backed onto Parliament Hill. It was a boys' school, um, it was a grammar school, and it was... But I just met a lot of people that I probably would never have come across before, you know. Um, just such a wide range of people with a lot of different interests. And obviously, yeah, and a lot of them played music, funnily enough. So that got me into playing music and got me into listening to more music. And So creativity and, and the arts was encouraged at school? Yes, in a way. It had... It was funny, I was talking about someone, uh, uh, this to someone the other day where I was saying that teaching in those days was a real mix. Because we'd come out of the 60s and it was the 70s, um, teaching was that a cross between very traditional teaching you know, and, and teachers in gowns and then teachers who'd probably just come out of teacher training from the 60s who didn't really care about like punctuation or didn't care about spelling things correctly because yeah. you just, you know, you, you creatively you should just get it all down and not worry about it, you know. So it was quite an interesting sort of mix, really. Yeah, it was a really good school. And, uh, yeah, I enjoyed it. I think by the end, I just knew I, want, I, want, I wanted to go to art college. So, um, and it didn't really fit too much in with what the, they wanted you to take a more academic route. So in, by the end of it, I knew I wanted to probably play music and probably go to art college. So, yeah, that by the end, I wasn't enjoying it too much. But Was there like-minded friends uh, that, were, you yes. know, that were into the arts and, and, and stuff like that yeah well. yeah very much so and people a lot of people played in bands and a lot of people played music because the school actually has got a had some quite sort of famous musicians there it was Richard Thompson uh, who was in Fairport Convention wasn't mm-hmm. he first of all and and then played with sort of various people Sandy Denny and Harry's obviously a big solo artist um, but he taught Hugh Cornwell of the Stranglers the guitar at school so it's got quite a good sort of pedigree of yeah. people who played music, yeah. Okay. Um, so you didn't meet any of the band at school? I knew, the person I knew uh, was John Hasler, who was, and John Hasler was pivotal in the very beginning of Madness. Uh, he went to my school. And funny enough, Clive Langer, the Madness producer, went to my school. Oh, really? But he's older. He's probably, he's probably four or five years older than me, so I wouldn't have really known him at school. Because he was, yeah, he was just much older in, in a, yeah. you know, um, yeah. So John Hasler is the link between me and um, Mike, Chris, and Lee that start, really sort of started Madness. But I was very good friends with Woody, the drummer. Yeah, we knew one another from around. Um, so I've I've known Woody on and off since uh, since about the same age, since about thirteen or fourteen. Oh, okay. I yeah. mean, not very well, but I knew him. I saw him around. I, t- I had spoken to him before he joined Madness, and sort of knew he pl- knew he played because he played the drums. He started playing the drums roughly about the same time as I started playing the bass in a way. Right. So you kind of it was one of the things where you sort of 
you knew they were because they were all in the sort of band scene in the same area. Yeah, and, and everyone of... was from around the sort of hanging around in the same area, sort of Camden, Kentish Town, Hampstead, yeah. you know, that, that sort of thing. Okay, okay. All right, well, um, for track four, mm. the first record you remember buying? Uh, yeah. Uh, I remember this very. I remember this sort of as, as clear as day. It was. Um, I went to uh, the his, his master's voice record shop in Holloway Road. I had some money. It must have been pocket money. And I bought. Uh, I can see clearly now by Johnny Nash. That was one of the first singles I bought. What an incredible record! Mm, it's a great record. Yeah, and I must have been attracted again to the kind of. I think I was attracted just to the melody of it because it's a brilliant melody. It's a beautiful and melody. It's a little just thing. Just a little skip where it drops yes. as well. It's, yeah, yeah. It's just beautiful. Yeah. Like, I don't know if I could have described it at that point about why I liked it, but it's yeah. just that thing of records, isn't it? You just you're just attracted to something. Yeah. I bought. Yeah, I bought with the money I had at the time. I used to buy the odd single because albums were you know quite relatively expensive for like a teenager, yeah. and you didn't buy many. But I think that when you did, mm. and I'm going to sound like an old bastard now. Because you couldn't afford to buy many, so when you got one, you cherished it, and you would rinse it. And oh, you would absolutely. Play it, flip absolutely. it, play it, flip it, study the artwork, study the sweet yes. notes. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I did. I was a nerd for something No, no, like absolutely, that. yeah. And I do think that that might be a shame that that probably doesn't exist as much now. I agree, and I think one of the things that I do miss um, in, some, in some respects is the, um, the mystery behind records because when you when you bought records sometimes there wasn't a picture of the band on the front there was probably no, they probably might have had their names yeah. and maybe what they played and maybe where it was recorded but you had to kind of imagine everything else about them you probably didn't even know what they looked like sometimes yeah. or what they you know or where they were where they were from or what they were doing or you know it's quite, and I miss that in some ways. I think, I think if we go back to what we were talking about, about the extra tracks on an yeah. album, and it kind of takes that mystery a little bit away of the process and the magic of how it's all done, you know. So you've, so you've left school, you've gone to art college. But um, I didn't, well, I didn't make it to art college in the end. I went for the interviews, but then Madness literally took off and we went off on tour, so I never made it, I never actually physically went in the end. Okay. Um, well, I want to talk about well, so let's talk about that now. We yeah. get, get back to um, the art and and and, and it, it, sort of how much influence you may have had on the, the you know the, the art work that Madness have, mm. have done over the years. But I mean, just from my perspective, watching Madness videos as a kid and mm. stuff like that, you and Woody look like children. Like, well, we are pretty like, much. You look so young. And yeah. like, so how was that from being? A local lad from North London to then being on top. I mean, how was Top of the Pops? Was it Prince the first time you'd done Yes, yes. I mean, how was that as an experience, growing up watching that and then to actually be on Top of the Pops? I mean, it was amazing. And um, at the time, I think we were, I was just 18. Woody would have been about the same age. Suggs would have been about the same age as well. And, uh, yeah, because Mike, Chris and Lee and Carl were a little bit bit older. Um, No, it was amazing. And it was... But in those days, because Top of the Pots was such a sort of monolithic thing, you know, if you went on Top of the Pots, everyone saw it because everyone watched yeah. it. There weren't many music shows. Yeah. Everyone watched it. And it kind of qualified, we all felt in the band, it sort of qualified us then because, then, because people said, yeah, I saw you on Top of the Pops. And my mum and dad were like, maybe this isn't a bad profession to get into, yeah. you know, after all, you know, you know, that whole thing of when are you going to get a sensible job, you know, but... Um, no, it was brilliant. We'd had, the funny thing was that we'd had a bit of a disappointment the week before. We were told that, uh, that we had to get to, uh, at that point, it was Rick Rogers, who was the specials manager and Two-Tone looked after Two-Tone and said, can you come to the office? I think it was a Tuesday or a Wednesday morning. Can you come to the office really early because the charts are coming out and if, you're, if you reach a certain position or they like, you know, they, they like the record, you might go on top of the pops this week and you have to go straight from here and straight to the BBC to do it. So we all troop in at like really ridiculous at like 8 o'clock, 9 o'clock in the morning, sat in the office, waited for the charts. The Prince had got to number 16, I think, but Secret Affair had got to number 15 or something or number 14 right. and they bumped us... They bumped us off. So yeah. by nine thirty, with all that, all this expectation, no, we had just had to go. Affair. We just had to go home <laughs> and didn't make it. But then the next week, I think it rose, it went up, 
uh, and they said, right, you're on. Yeah. So we went and did it, yeah. Uh, and it was amazing. It, I mean, it was amazing. Can you remember who you was on with? I can't. I actually can't remember. Was it, was it what you expected? What, what did you expect from it? And what, and what, you know, because for me, as a kid, I imagine that these bands went on top of the pops and then yeah. when they left, straight away just got on a jet and went to somewhere incredible. And, no, and we obviously... knowing us, we probably got the tube home. Because <laughs> yeah. on Tutone and on Stiff, there wasn't that much money around yeah, for that kind of thing. But uh, no, it was, it was amazing to be on television and to see how it worked as well, you know, and to... And we had the people dancing around us, as, yeah. he, as they did on Top of the Pops. Um, we were just... You can see our faces. We're just laughing, because yeah. it's just, like, so fantastic, the whole idea of putting us on television, you know. And so, I mean, in, in a world that we live in now where fame is instant and right. you just go on a reality show or something like that with, with, with next to no talent and you become a household name right. and probably get mobbed in the streets. Going back to... To, to then like how, how did you find from you know just being in a back room playing music with your mates mm. and then all of a sudden you, you become you know and, and, and Madness quite quickly become you know they were a household name weren't they yeah like, I mean you know. yeah and and we were young how did you deal with that, that I think we stuck together as a group you know we stuck together as people because if the, the thing is though as well is that you just don't get much time to think about it and reflect on it. You, unfortunately, you re reflect upon it many years later, or like when you kind of... I think when we stopped touring and we kind of gave it a break, I was 26 or 27, I think, and I've been, we've been going for like, you know, nine years pretty much at it, you know, for, for that, that period, and we'd ha we hadn't stopped. So you were, you were young, you had a lot of energy, obviously, you're kind of exuberant and, in, and enjoying it all. And you, you're whisk, whisked along, you know, you're, like, you're off on tour, you come back, you make a record. You go off on tour again, you make a record, you do stuff, you know. I mean, I think I worked out in the first two years of Madness signing a deal, I was only at home for probably, if you added up the days, four or five months of that two years, probably, wow. something like that. So, you know, you're just rushed along. You're just kind of rushed along on this wave of just doing stuff, which is exciting as a, you know, as a kind of in your late teens. It's really, yeah, what can be, what can be better, you know? So of all that, whether the, the, the touring, the writing, the, the, what, what did you enjoy the most? Um, about the whole experience? Uh, you know, just or in regards to writing, performing, like, you know. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust proof stainless steel hardware, weather ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Are you happy in the studio? Um, yeah, I think, we, yeah, yeah, we were, we were happy in the studio, I think, and we were happy. Predominantly you. Um, Me personally, yes, yeah. yeah, I think, I think I enjoyed the recording aspect of it, because you're, then you're making, you're really making something, yeah. and, um, and we did it, and I think our proudest kind of achievements was the fact that we made a lot of the records really quickly, but kept the quality up, you know. I think the second, our second album, absolutely, was literally, you know, made and recorded within a couple of months or something. You know, we were literally writing to a deadline. And, um, and I think the album itself, from top to tail, took five, six weeks to make, you know. Wow. And, 
and then you come out the other end of it and you actually you know and you're, you're pleased with it and that's a real achievement and you feel really good about it and to, to go back to that initial question about um you know be, being an artist and being a, a fan of the arts and mm. stuff like that um video wise um i think madness were iconic and i think that was very much key to the the for me as a as a, as a young lad just seeing madness mm. videos yeah. was instantly relatable yeah and, and it was fun um and and just the you know absolutely the sleeve to that and you know did you feel like you wanted to have an input into any of the kind of artistic stylings of of, of, of madness? Well, we, I mean, for the videos, we had a very good way of doing them. We would go to Stiff Records, we'd sit down in a, around a big round table with Dave Robinson, and we would just fire, everyone would just fire off ideas. Some were completely unworkable. Like I remember what, for one video, we wanted a rubber street. And that's the kind of thing we'd say. What about if we had a rubber street? And we were walking down a rubber street, and everything was like bendy and like... So we'd think about that for a couple of minutes and say, you know what, it's probably going to cost too much money and it's not workable. But then maybe something would come from that. Someone, let's not have a rubber street, let's have something else that's rubber or, you know. So that's how we kind of brainstorm it, which I, I don't know if we knew what that, if we knew that was the name for it. But we would yeah. literally sit around and by the end of a few hours, we'd have from top to tail of the song, we'd have a, pretty much a storyboard mapped out. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. So before we did them, we'd have a pretty good structure of what we might do. And then on the day, once you've got the props and you're in the location uh, and that, then it, you might come up with little little ideas and stuff that would, might, might go in, you know, might go into the video. Yeah. And I think we work like that playing music as well. We worked that everyone, and we still record that way and rehearse that way. We go into a rehearsal room together and just sit there and, you know, come up, people have demos and come up with ideas and, and then work, work our way through them. So it's, it hasn't really changed that much in that sense. Hello, I've interrupted the podcast again, haven't I? Sorry, it won't take a sec. All I want to say is the songs that we're talking about in this podcast, if we can't play them, it's just because of the regulations regarding playing licensed music and such. So if you want to hear the songs... Just go over to Spotify and search Off The Beat and Track Podcast and you can listen to all the songs because I've put playlists up for each of these. If you can't find it on there, I'll send links on all the social media accompanying each episode. So you've just got to press that one button and you can go through and you can enjoy all the songs that our guest picks. Anyway, I'll shut up and get back to the podcast. See you on the other side. Okay, well, before we... Well, let's let's do the next track, and then you, you mentioned that you sort of hit it hard for about eight years, and then hmm. um, madness sort of retired for a while. Yeah, pretty and, much. Uh, yes, yes, yes. So let's let's get your track five in, which is um, uh, the song that soundtracked your your years clubbing. Well, I mean, we were uh, we were very at the time to- at the time when I went out clubbing. Um, we had quite a few good clubs in London, and there was the Wag Club, obviously, yep. which was a... The Wag Club became a kind of place where you'd just hang out and meet other musicians and stuff, and you'd always meet someone there. You could probably go on your own there most nights, and, yeah. and you'd know someone there. That's a great place. So that was a, you know, we're still very close with um, Chris Sullivan and, yeah. you know, as well. Um, yeah, so we were in there quite a lot. We used to have parties in there. We'd, like, hire it out for nights and stuff. Madness. Yeah. Yeah. And... Um, there was the embassy as well, I mm-hmm. remember. There was a Thursday night at the... Which was the Music Machine, which is now Coco, I think, that we used to go out to. And then there was Wendy May's Locomotion at the Town and Country Club on a Friday right. as well. But my... I really got in, in that period, which was probably the 80s, the middle 80s. So was this the kind of... The sort of southern soul, the, the soul scene? Yeah, yeah. Happening? And I really got into a lot of things like um, Jocelyn Brown and Evelyn King. Yeah. Uh, and even the pop stuff like Shalimar yeah. and things like that. And I really enjoyed that. So the track I've chosen is Somebody Else's Guy by Jocelyn Brown. Yes. Which is a fantastic, fantastic song. I listened to all this on the way up here yeah. today. I drove up today. And uh, I've probably heard that song a million times. Yeah. But... I just normally in a club or I'm DJing or whatever, and yeah. I've just added it on in my car today. And as far as intros go, that's an that, intro. That's not a as bad well. intro either, yeah. Like, yeah, um, yeah. It's, it's phenomenal. And yeah. do you know what? It could come out this week and it would still sound fresh as a daisy. Yeah, exactly. And right. I hope it, yeah, and I hope it would. You just, your faith, your faith would be uh, 
you'd feel like it'd be really good if it was a hit again because it should be a hit again yeah. you know because it's such a brilliant thing so did that because that for me like I, I live in Essex so Chris Hills from where I'm yeah. from so that that whole gold mine thing was was a little bit before my time right. I, I just missed it but it's something that's revered in Essex that that, that kind of soul scene yes. then at yeah. that point was was big business yeah. and personally I prefer the northern soul right okay yes yeah point. yeah I'm, yeah I'm, I'm, but um but there is a, a lot of the stuff like Champagne King and stuff yeah. like that that just cuts through. That's just yes. fantastic. Yeah, record. and I see, I kind of I kind of see it a little bit as a sort of a, an extension um, to Motown as well. Yeah. I always I always felt that if Motown, you know, it was kind of the successor to Motown in yeah. some ways. If you took Soul forward, mm. you know, that you'd get a lot of this stuff. The other there's there's other stuff like the Gap Band as well. I mean, Burn Rubber <sighs> on Me and stuff, and that, and that that's got a brilliant intro, funny enough as well. You Mark. Know. I went with my wife to see Bruno Mars right. a few months ago at Hyde Park, and uh, and and then I, I wouldn't say I'm a huge Bruno Mars fan, but my wife is. And I went along, and he was phenomenal. Make yeah. no mistake. And uh, but when I walked in, there was this guy on stage, and he, it looked like he was on stage with the Temptations. They were all in, like, dressed amazingly, all doing sort of synchronised yeah. dancing, all the like, all the different musicians. And I thought this this sounds good, and he just kept saying his name, this guy, right. and, and he was an older fellow. And I just thought. Who is that? Yeah, and uh, and then he started playing outstanding. Yeah, and I just thought, fucking hell, it's the Gatman! <laughs> oh, it was phenomenal, absolutely brilliant. I never thought I'd get to see the Gatman, but um, or yeah. whatever the guy's name. Well, that was that. Burn Run is a track of my youth as well. Yeah. Oh, what a tune as well. Yeah. Um, so, right. Well, let's let's just go into the sort of hiatus that that Madness had for a while. So, yes. when was that? Eighty-six. Eighty. Yeah, eighty-six. Okay, so um, what sort of come first? Because I know that I didn't realise that you was in Voice at a Beehive That's right, for a yes. while. I knew Woody was, and yeah. I've been to see him several times, and they played last year, I believe, as well. That's right, they came over, the girls came yeah. over, yeah. Um, so uh, did you, was you in it for the first album? And no, I was in it for the very, very beginning, for the, I suppose, for the sole purpose of playing with them and playing with Woody and for them to get a deal and Woody said oh, you know would, I think it was Woody said would you come and do it how did this come me? about like, I think Woody had met them right uh, I can't remember exactly but I think they'd come over from California they had re- you know they had really good songs and their the band the people I think they had in the band at the time wasn't functioning very well so they decided to take Mike who was the, the, one of the guitarists and then kind of reassess it all and, and sort of like kind of try and get the songs into shape which they did and then they somehow had a connection to Woody maybe through like Dave Balf you know do you know Dave Balf who, who was, he was another one part, one of part of food yeah, as well yeah. it might have been him or it might have even been Andy Ross I can't actually quite remember but um, and then Woody said you know do you want to come and play as well and it was really exciting because they were on the verge of you know of getting a deal you, and it was exciting because the crowds got bigger, the buzz got bigger, and it was really great. And it, I mean, what he always sort of say, it got our it got our excitement back in music again after being a bit jaded for years of touring yeah. and touring and touring. Those first three singles mm. are solid gold, pop yeah. gems. They are, and, yeah. And, and and maybe don't call me baby does still get you know radio playing that, but I yeah. say nothing and I walk the earth. Mm. They're just absolute stone-cold yes. hits, and they just don't get played anymore. No, sure. Well, I mean, the, you know, the girls just were saying, no, we don't want to do that, don't call me baby. And me and Woody were going, are you mad? You know, yeah. this is a hit. You know, this is a fantastic song. Why aren't you doing it live? Yeah. Oh, we just don't really want to do it. It doesn't represent... And then we talked them into it. And then they really, you know, and they, it used to go down really well as a real yeah. favourite. No, that's good, that album. I mean, I, I was always not, I, I wasn't going to sort of be there for a long time. It was always sort of known that I was actually just going to do the first little bit. Why was that? Because I didn't want to get into anything uh, for a while. I wanted to rest, basically. I didn't want to go off and start touring again. Yeah. And, and because I, event, I actually eventually went back to, I actually did go to art college that's in right, the end. Yeah. 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 So that, I had kind of had my mind on, I wanted to, to be in London for a while, not worry about going away, uh, not, not worrying about things like touring and that, and actually go off and sort of do something that I'd actually wanted to do years before. So I, went, I ended up at LCP at the Elephant and Castle, 
Um, how was that? that? That was great. I had a really lovely time. So I think I was technically a mature student. Yeah. Uh, so I had a couple of years there and really, really enjoyed it. And so it, it, was music literally completely on the back burner at that point? A little bit, yes. I was doing the odd thing, uh, but n- nothing very much. And but so the first thing you'd done after that was that hooking up with Terry and... I'd met Terry in that period. Terry Edwards. Yeah, Terry Edwards, yes. I'd met Terry Edwards in that period. And he asked me to come and play some of his demos. And that's how I knew people in the Higgs, you know, because he was played in a band called the Higsons. Mm -hmm. I was good friends with another guy who was in the Higsons early, Uncle Dave Cummings. And And, uh, and I knew Charlie Higson as well from that. Yes, you point out to people that that's Charlie Higson from the Far Show. Far Show, yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I knew that I knew those people. They'd been up in Norwich, they were at UEA in Norwich, and then they came up to live in London. So... Yeah, so I'd met Terry, that's when I met Terry, but I just did some demos with him, which would eventually kind of turn into this thing called Butterfield 8 a bit later on. Um, but yeah, yeah, I, yeah, I, what I actually did come back and do, obviously, was Madstock at so that time, yeah, as well. That's kind of... 92 or something like that, I think. Yeah. Yeah, that was, I was still at, just at LCP then. And that's when, yeah, sorry. And that's when Madstock, um, they talked about getting the band back together to do that particular, just that one-off event it was going to be. So uh, let's talk about that then, mm. because um, I was there for the Saturday. Right. Um, and there's one thing I want to tell you that I don't suppose the band was aware of that I think was one of the most genius things I'd ever seen in my life. And that's before I'd even got in there. But we, um, we was queuing up to get in. Mm. And... I mean, I was quite young, but there was a fellow outside with like an upturned beer crate <laughs> right. with another one next to it with a car battery and some clippers yes. and a little sign saying, be a nutty boy, skinheads, two quid. And there was all these pissed up old scar boys that were coming, got the green light from the missus to go out yes. and have a knees up and they were queuing up, obviously half cut before they got in getting these skinheads done and this fella must have made a killing outside and I thought that's a genius <laughs> yeah, idea that exactly. is mate <laughs> actually you must remind me I'll tell the rest of the band about that <laughs> I thought I'll take a double look check it's not Lee but, uh, that's was, absolutely brilliant yeah, yeah. It, it was fantastic <laughs> and and so in regards to, to, to bringing Terry into the equation here as well Gallon yes. Drunk played on that day didn't they yes uh, and yes. Uh, Flowered Up yeah that was one of the later ones I think that was the first Madstock Definitely. Well, they definitely... What, in 92? Yep. That was... Okay, well, you're, you, you're probably right, because my mind gets a bit befuddled. It was gallon drunk. It yeah. was flowered up. Yeah. Ian Jury, which we'll get on to yes, later. absolutely. Um, Morrissey on the Saturday. Um, he come on with the Union Jack, and there was a bit of furore Yeah, and he didn't it. come back the next day. He didn't day. come back. And no. I was at the front screaming like the Smith's obsessive I am. Yeah. And there was coins coming over yeah, and, sure, and, yeah. and stuff yeah, like yeah. that. But, um, and he didn't come back on the Sunday, but, um, and then I, I just, I, I can't express the joy of, of seeing madness come out of stage that day. Mm, mm. It was, it was, I, I mean, that's, and I certainly weren't alone there. There was, there was enough people there to measure on the Richter scale, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but how did that feel? For you, walking out at that oh, point. Oh, it was, am- it, was ama- it was amazing. It was a really emotional night, and that and that was just the band. You know, the, the, there was a f- there wasn't a dry eye on stage. Actually, I mean, it it was. Um, Did you think that you would sell that out? Did you? Was you? No, no, really, no. Seriously, we just felt that what we wanted to do actually was put a cap on everything because we'd never. S- I don't know, saying goodbye, but we'd never sort of said definitively, this is it, or, you know, thanks for everything, or whatever. But in the end, it turned out to be a kind of, to renew everything, and kind of, it was all reborn again after it, which was a bit odd. And we were just thinking, well, let's do this. We'll see what happens. And it's kind of a good way to say goodbye. And we're in London, and it's a big, it's an outdoor show, and it'd be a really good night, and we'll enjoy it, you know. And actually, we we did quite an interesting thing, which is a bit different from us. To get away from everything around the show, we went over to Holland to rehearse and to play a little gig to warm up because we hadn't played with one another for like oh, you played a, a few show. years. Yeah, we played a little in a club in in the Hague, Den Haag, a tiny, tiny club. I don't know why it was picked, but it was. It was close. You know, it wasn't too far to go from London, but it kept us out of the sort of buzz of the whole thing, and so it, I think it made it doubly more 
kind of emotional and more, and more impactful when we actually got to Finsbury Park because we hadn't been around the buzz of it too much and then you just realise, Jesus, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we did two nights, I think 36,000 people each night, I think it was. Uh, it was, and we, when we walked out for that, um, when we walked out on the first night and everyone said, well, what should we do? You know, what should we do? And I, I, I just said, oh, let's just do nothing. Let's just walk out there and stand on the front of the stage and that's what we did and it kind of ramped the crowd up yeah. for some reason. And then the, I always remember the first few numbers we set off and we were playing and it was going, you know, it was like we were in, in the groove a bit and it was going well. I looked round to Chris and he wasn't moving. And I was looking and saying, what's, what, what's wrong? And I think he, he was just kind of overwhelmed by everything, you know. And then, then as the set went on, we got into it a bit more and it, yeah. we, we relaxed a bit more. And it went, yeah, it just went really well, considering that we hadn't played with one another for like a really long time. So... When you walk off stage after doing something like that, yeah. and then you go home and yeah. jump into bed, like when you shut your eyes, what? How do you kind of come back to planet Earth and well, like and you know have a cup of tea and you know and and get forty wings? How's, how, well, how actually, I can that? let you into a little secret. I, I've walked home from a couple of those mad stocks. Really? Yeah, just to calm down a little bit, yeah. and uh, that's quite a good way of. Yeah. That's quite a good way of letting the adrenaline sort of yeah, yeah. fantastic um, but no you don't I, it's something that you actually you it's one thing about doing it for so long is that you um, you ride those high and lows you know quite a lot and you realise what they are and so you do certain things that you're not completely obviously you have to kind of control your nervous energy when you're going out to play because it's the you know, it's one thing being nervous and playing, but it's another thing of being overexcited and playing as well. Sure. So you have to kind of really try and... I know it's a very modern word, but sort of centre yourself a bit and control yourself okay. a bit so that you're not getting massive highs and lows. But then you try and get yourself into it as you're going along, you know, and get your playing good. And So before we, we move on, just a, one last thing about mm. um, Madstock and, and specifically that, that the, the, the support bands. How, how are they chosen? Because there seemed to be like a loose connection with yourselves and a lot of the bands on that. Yeah, we try and, we try and put the bill together and always have done in a lot of the things we've done. Um, and sometimes, and I don't think I'm giving too many secrets away, sometimes bands are added for, to sell extra tickets or to, to actually pull in a different sections of people as well to come and see the show. Obviously, it's not... The best thing is if you can get complimentary people and people around you who sure. you think kind of compliments you. Ian Jury was an yeah, amazingly exactly. yeah. smart choice of a, yeah, a support was, band because we, you know, brilliant. We, and we love... We've, right from the Kilburns days he's been we used to call him uncle ian because he was like a kind of you know like an old kind yeah. of mentor to us and we wanted him on the bill we just wanted him on the bill yeah. because the blockheads are a fantastic live band as well so and i think for a lot of people i think a lot of people were surprised that morrissey was on the bill how did that come about well at the time i because you played i on played on a morrissey uncle, record yes and there was lots of connections with madness at that point he was very friendly with suggs and carl He's, he's a big Madness fan, isn't he, from what I've heard? I think heard. he is, yes, I yeah. think he is, genuinely, yeah. Did Suggs sing on Piccadilly? Yes, Suggs but, did something with him, yeah. Yeah. Um, so there were a lot of... I think he was living in Camden at that point as well, funny enough. So there was a, quite a few Madness connections. And he uh, uh, talked to Clive Langer, because Clive Langer produced Kill Uncle. Right. So he was seeing Clive quite a lot. And I just think we asked and said, do you want to come and do you want to come and play at this? You know, I mean, it didn't go, unfortunately, it didn't go too well, but... Um, well, for, for someone that was a Morrissey fan, I thought it was fantastic. Oh, right, OK. <laughs> I loved it. I think we were, just quite, we were just quite upset that he didn't come back for the second day. Not yeah. angrily upset, but just disappointed that yeah. he just didn't show up again. That, you know, I, yeah, personally, I think he just should have, should have just come and played yeah. again, you know, and just rode his way through it a little bit. Yeah, know? absolutely. Well... For track six, mm. we've mentioned them already, um, but I don't think we can talk enough about um, this man and his music. Um, for track six, a favourite song from an artist from your hometown of London. Yes. Um, there are, again, there are quite a few contenders. and We can talk about them. Okay. Well, let, let, me, let me say the track I actually picked was Billy Bentley. Uh, Promenades himself in London it is the full title by Kilburn and the High Rose, which of course is Ian Jury's first band and they had a massive influence on us um, for a number of reasons firstly that 
Ian's vocal, he doesn't sing in an American accent, for example. You know, he sings in a very much a London, that's why I picked it as well, it's a very much a London accent he sings in. He also sings about just messing around London, you know, walking around London, you know, being in London, uh, which we did. I know the whole band, Manners did, and I did a lot as, ki as kids and teenagers. We used to jump on buses and just travel around and just, like, hang out in places and go and see things. And so it reminds me, personally, of being a teenager and a ki kid quite a lot doing that. And, you know, it... Also, the sound of it paves... You can hear it paves the way for madness a little bit Definitely. as well. Because, obviously, we were influenced by it. And I think, it, you know, Ian Drury sort of almost said... Almost made, it, made us feel that it was... You could actually write songs like that yeah. with that London influence, with that London vibe, yeah. you know. Um, the, other, the other song I might have picked is Waterloo Sunset, which I think might be the greatest song about London. It's the a, King song. It's a beauty, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. And every time, I'd, I would defy anyone who walks over Waterloo Bridge not to be sort of singing that song when they, when they do it, you know. <laughs> Definitely. Um, so, was you going to watch Ian Jury as, as a youngster as well? Yes, yeah. yeah. Whereabouts would you go? What live venues were, were you well, kind of... The kind, of, it, it, the kind of venues then was, it was pub rock, what they called, used yeah. to call pub rock. So it was the Hope and Anchor, of course, the Nashville, um, the Moonlight Club in West Hampstead, uh, there was the Tally Ho in right. Barnet, I think. There was the Greyhound in Fulham Palace Road. So going back to Canvey Island, not for the gold mine this time, but for the feel goods and the yes. hot rods. Were yeah. they they all playing? They at were around. That time I saw well. Eddie in the hot rods really early on at the Roundhouse. Yeah. Funny enough, I think on the bit on a bill at the Roundhouse, and I thought they were brilliant. They were really energetic. The feel goods played in Holloway Road at a pub called the Lord Nelson, I think it's called. Where because most pubs had a back room, yeah, and they would put on gigs, yeah. you know. Um, so you got to see a lot of bands, yeah, that way, very cheaply. And even I was kind of, you know, in, bizarrely, you know, like un, obviously under 18 at the time, but they used to let people sneak in. And if, you, if you're quiet and you sat at the back and didn't cause any trouble, you know, you could go and see. I went to a lot of pubs to see bands in my teens, you know. It's exciting, right? Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Okay. Um, well, look, um, so bringing it up to date now... Mm. Um, for the for the last track, Mark is um, a song that many may not know. Yes, that you would like them to hear. So you can give them an opportunity to turn them onto something that maybe they've not yeah. heard before. I'm a massive fan of Robert Wyatt, and if you Robert Wyatt's career, he comes from the sort of seventies. He was in a band called Soft Machine, which were what you could call prog rock, but he used to sing a bit with them, and he's got. The most amazing voice, delicate, and sort of fragile voice. Mm. Again, there's that Britishness about it, that Englishness. He doesn't sing in an American accent, um, but his voice is just wonderful. And he then went on to become a solo artist. Uh, he recorded on Rough Trade quite a lot. Um, I was lucky enough to play with him, and I was on Shipbuilding, that song Shipbuilding with him. Um, I mean, that's that's a moment, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, it's a fantastic thing. You to do. Play I play double bass on that, yeah. So fucking hell, really? Yeah. That's. Um, but I've always, always loved him. Always loved his singing, and this is unusual, I think, because this is a chic song. He's doing a cover of it's called "At Last I Am Free," and it's his version of that song, and it's different. It's a lot more dreamy, a lot more ethereal, but his vocal is just gorgeous on it, um, and maybe it's something that people actually haven't heard before. I didn't know that was a chic record. Yes. Oh. Yeah. It's, it's heartbreaking. Yeah, it's an amazing thing, yeah. Okay, so bringing it right up to now, so what's, I mean, we, we did mention earlier that you'd you done Butterfield 8 with, with Terry Edwards mm -hmm. and yep. you put an album out last year with Terry. Yes, a band called The NJE, which is me, Terry Edwards and a drummer called Simon Charterton and the three of us go out and just play and improvise and, you know, it's, it's different, but it's enjoyable. It's a lot of fun playing. Uh, and we're actually doing some work now with Adrian Sherwood at the moment. Oh, really? Yeah. Um, I think if people know On You Sound and yeah. uh, all that. So he's done some mixes for us, and it's really good. It's really interesting that we don't play really play reggae, but he's kind of dubbed some of the stuff that we've done. 
Nice. And uh, that should be out in February sometime. So keep an eye out for that because that is that's a really intriguing combination. That it's you know I'm I'm a massive admirer of all his dub stuff and all his on you sound stuff. So it was it's been brilliant getting the chance to sort of work with him. We did a BBC session with him, um, which kicked the whole project off. And he almost like like he uses the mixing desk like a an instrument. He kind of live mixes everything as you're going along, and it's amazing. So um, we're going to do a little bit more of that. And anything happening with the Scar Orchestra? No, the Scar Orchestra's in mothballs at the moment. Um, not sure what <laughs> Lee. Like I'm that. not sure what Lee wants to do with it, yeah. particularly. Um, that was a brilliant thing to do, playing all those old, old Scar tunes. Uh, but it's a it, it's an absolute you know kind of organisational nightmare because there's sometimes 10, 11, 12 yeah. of us. And getting it started out as a bunch of people that we'd all worked with down the years and friends who we wanted to play with and that. But getting them all in the same room proved to be a lot of the time really, really hard, you know, yeah. to get everyone there. Okay. And the arts, what are you doing? You're still involved in, in art? Yeah, I still do graphic design. Uh, like every musician, I've got another trade <laughs> just in case things yep. go wrong. And you'd be surprised the amount of brass players that are plumbers. Yeah. It's unbelievable. But um, no, so I still do graphic design work and I still work on books and mainly books I do. So Enjoy it? Yeah, yeah, really enjoy it. Um, yeah, I'd have no difficulty. If Madness had lasted for like one record, I'd have no difficulty in just being a designer, you know, at all. Because that's well, what I kind of side out wanting to be. So. Well, thankfully, Madness lasted more than one Absolutely, record. Absolutely, yeah. So, um, a Madness, what's happening? We are... We're talking now, uh, it's November, so we're going to go out at Christmas time. Butlin' soon? Yes, going to do the Minehead thing uh, with a good bill. I think it's a really good... I think that gets better and better each year with the people we can get down to it. Do you, do you, are you very much involved in curating yeah, yeah, that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We try and have an input into it um, and try and get some people to come down that we like. This year we've got Chris Difford from Squeeze, actually. That's going to be really interesting. Nice. He's going to do some solo stuff. Really looking forward to it. And David Rodigan obviously yeah. always does it. And he's brilliant. Whatever, whatever set he does is sort of normally fantastic. So Superb. Yeah. Bettis, thank you so much for coming down today. You're very welcome. And, and, and having a chat. It's been a real real joy hearing, hearing you talk about so much music that's, that's meant so much to me. And I should point out as well that this is, I think, probably going to be the maybe the 35th or 36th one I've um, recorded of, of, of this podcast. And... The song that soundtracked my time at school, I think 12 people have chose Madness so far. Have they really? That's amazing. (laughs) (laughs) A lot to be said for baggy trousers, mate. Um, Thank you so much, mate. You're very welcome. uh, And really appreciate it, Mark. Thank you. No problems. Bye-bye. There you have it. Bedders. Frickin' bedders from Madness. I go to London and I sit there and talk about Madstock and Ian Jury and all the things that have soundtracked my life and I get to chat to them by the very person that literally did soundtrack my life he played bass in one of the bands that was most important to me growing up and so it was an absolute joy and privilege and honour to sit there and and chat to bedders and, and most importantly he was an absolute gentleman just really friendly, uh, really engaging and I don't need to tell you all of that. You've just listened. You got that, right? Anyway, thanks ever so much for listening. Go and have a look in the back catalogue. There's loads of stuff there. Um, and head over to iTunes and just give us a, a, little rate, uh, a little rating. That'd be really good. And if you can subscribe, that's even better. And if you really enjoyed this and you want to hear more, then, like I say, have a look in the back catalogue or head over to patreon.com off the beaten track go and have a look over there because there's loads of other stuff that hasn't been released to the masses over there for you to get stuck into and it's all available at www.offthebeatentrackpodcast.com thank you so much for listening thanks to the Hoxton Square Bar and Kitchen thanks to Distraction Pieces Network and most importantly thanks to Bedders cheers see you next time it's Off the Beaten Track Podcast on the Distraction Pieces Network. It may stew with it. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more 
and is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Confidence starts with loving who you are. And when your skin feels nourished and glows on the outside, you naturally radiate confidence from the inside. Give your skin a glow up with Osea's clinically proven Mega Moisture Duo. This ultra-hydrating body care features two of Osea's bestsellers, Andaria Algae Body Oil and Andaria Collagen Body Lotion. These seaweed-powered heroes use skincare-level ingredients normally reserved for your face for results you can see and confidence you can feel. Osea has been making clean, clinically proven seaweed-infused face and body care products for over 28 years. This luxurious skincare is vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Glow from the inside out. Get 10% off your first order with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com, code GLOW.